We're going to spend some time in John 18 today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can grab it. And that's where we're going to be today. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one to follow along with, um, you can raise your hand and Tim or one of our fit team members will, will get one to you. Okay? So John 18 is where we're going to be. Um, let me um, uh, reiterate something that Steve um, already alluded to. About, about, uh, last week we talked about our vision for our local impact for 2015. Becky laid out a great message uh, last week about that. As we, were, as we were talking and praying about what direction we wanted to head for 2015, we, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just pointing. Children, uh, children, I'm sorry. Middle schoolers, you're not children. You're young men and women. Middle schoolers, you may stand and go back with Pastor Joe. You are dismissed. I'm, I'm that excited about John 18. I just can't wait to get into it. Um, but Becky laid out an incredible uh, message last week uh, about our uh, new direction this year for our local impact. And so as we were talking and praying through about what direction to go, we, we came across James 1.27. In James 1, it says that the religion that God sees as pure and acceptable is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so we asked, well, what does that look like in San Jose in 2015? How does that translate to today? And so we thought, well, um, we are caring for women in distress in our ministry at House of Grace. It's been an incredible uh, 10 years serving uh, the women there. Uh, we, I think we've been about as blessed as they have been, if not much, much more. Uh, but each month um, in our uh, gathering and then in our parenting classes, uh, we get together with them. We, we, we share our lives together. We build relationships. We pray for them. We serve them. We share the gospel with them. Um, we're caring for women in distress through our ministry at House of Grace. But what about children in distress? What about the children in distress? And so we prayed about that. We talked about that, what, what that could look like. And long story short, we believe that God is leading us as a church to invest in the fostering community in 2015. And so um, Becky laid out, you know, not just the need for our engagement with the fostering community, but also what, um, you know, we can do, how each of us can be involved. And so not everybody is going to be able to be a foster parent, right? It'd be neat, but, if, you know, if a few of us maybe a year from now uh, have kids actually coming into our home, kids who have been brought into the foster system for whatever reason, we provide a loving home for them. That would be incredible to see. It'd be incredible to see little kids, you know, from the foster system running around, you know, this, this room here a year from now. I think that would be so neat to see. Um, but the reality is, as Steve said, not everybody's at a place where they can become a foster parent. But there is something that everybody can do. Every single one of us can do. Something that the county has asked us to do is to help them to create what they call warm handoffs. And so I'm going to grab this basket here. Um, so when, when, a, when a child is ushered into the, to the foster system, they are um, oftentimes taken out by the police or the, the social worker or not, and they're taken out for whatever reason, whether it's domestic abuse or neglect or abandonment or whatever. They're, they're brought out, and oftentimes they just go out with the clothes on their back. Or sometimes, you know, the, the police officer will, will get a plastic bag for them, and they'll throw, you know, some pajamas off the floor, whether they're clean or dirty, you know, a couple of shoes, whether they match or not. They'll put them in a plastic bag, and basically that's what they have to their name. And they're carted from house to house, wherever they end up getting a group home or whatever, and that's all they have to their name. The county said it'd be really, really neat if we could give them a warm handoff. If we could have a nice duffel bag or a nice backpack that's stocked with, you know, a clean set of pajamas and a toothbrush and toothpaste and a stick of deodorant, right, for some of the older kids, right, and a, a, a book and a, and a stuffed animal, something along these lines. And so what we've decided to do is, as the county has requested, is each and every Sunday we're going to have this basket right there, this basket, that's the front, and you can put 
your donations, we've already got some, your donations in here each and every Sunday. And then when we get enough supplies, we're going to assemble these and we'll then pass them off to the county. And we'll just keep doing that over and over all throughout the year. So you may not be able to take a kid into your home, but what you can do is when you're at Safeway this week buying groceries, you can get some extra toothbrushes. Right? Or you can get a stick of deodorant. Or when you're at Target, you can go and, and buy a stuffed animal or buy, you know, buy a set of pajamas. Okay, can you do that? And then we're going to have this in the back each and every Sunday, and you put them right here. All right? Um, and, and let me just say one more thing on that before I move on. We're already seeing our church uh, grab a hold of this vision and, and get involved. It's been really, really neat to see. Um, as, as Steve alluded to, we, we mentioned uh, a, a few months ago that Jessica and I are beginning the process to become foster parents. And what was really neat was that... Um, you know, right away, there was a family that came to us and said, you know, basically, you know, Phil, we, you know, we think it's great what you guys are doing. We're not at a place right now where we're able to do that, but we see the need. We want to get involved in somehow, you know, we, we know there's a couple issues at your house. If you want to pass that home safety inspection, you're going to have to get that taken care of. It will, let, us help, let us help you take care of that. And they helped us take care of these issues. They got involved in, 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 in the way that they were able to, they contributed to empowering us to be able to bring in foster kids. And then last week, it happened again. Last Saturday, Jessica and I had to go to this first aid CPR class to get, you know, as part of the certification process. It's one of those eight-hour classes, right? Who is going to watch our three children, three kids under the age of six, for eight hours, right, on a Saturday? Here's what was really cool. Is, so there's a family in our church that took our oldest son, Israel, uh, and, and basically added him to the flock for that day for them, right? Um, but then what about our two babies? We've got a one-year-old and a two-year-old. Who's going to watch them on a Saturday for eight hours? Well, Jessica's community group took shifts. They, they stepped up, and they volunteered, and they took shifts. And so uh, Lily and, and Bev were at our, house, at our house at 6.45 in the morning on, on Saturday, right? We asked them to come at 7.15, by the way. Um, they came at 6.45. Not, not, not because they've got some sick sense of humor, but because, <laughs> because they wanted to help us as we get ready, they wanted to watch the kids so that we can get ready and get out the door on time. You know, they, they, were, they were there, and then when we got back at the end of the class, uh, uh, it was uh, Vicky and Dora Celaya who were there with our kids. And, 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 they, and I walked into their house, and our table was just full of food, you know, that the kids would love. They brought a bunch. We had food ready for our kids, right? We had lunch prepared. But they had brought a bunch of food that they thought the kids would enjoy um, just to kind of bless them. And so our, our table was full of a bunch of food, and Doris had found our uh, my, our laundry basket where all the single socks are, you know, you've got that one laundry basket where all the single socks end up in there, and you're like, one of these days I'm going to go through it and fold these socks. Doris went through it and folded it. There's this mound of socks on our, on our couch. And walked in, and just, I thought, Doris, what are you doing? <laughs> but but this was, it was so neat. This is how they spent their Saturday, was enabling Jessica and I to go out and, and attend this eight-hour class, watching our kids, blessing our kids, folding our laundry. That's what church was meant to be. Right? Not everybody can take in a, a foster kid, but everybody can play a part. And we're already seeing our church come around and play a part. That is so neat to me. I really do love our church. Um, but that being said, that first aid CPR class, that was kind of our last piece. That was our, the last step in the process for us. And so we've, the classes are done, the doctor's visits are done, the paperwork's finished. We turned it in this last week. We got really excited. We're on the next step in the process. However, um, I'd be lying to you. If I, if I didn't, didn't, didn't tell you that uh, uh, we're pretty nervous. I, I've, I've told you guys this before, in, in, uh, you know, months ago, but when we began the process, um, this is a bit overwhelming. Throughout the process, as we've taken the classes, as we've talked to the people in the system, and we hear the story after story after story after story of brokenness and abuse and neglect and these, just these deep-seated issues, we're feeling a little overwhelmed uh, at the moment. 
You know, where now we've begun the, the, the conversations with, with the, the, uh, the county and, and we're, we're that, you know, one step closer to basically opening up our life to this whole world. And, and there's a, a tremendous amount of brokenness and darkness right in our own backyard, right in this, in this world. Um, we're feeling a little overwhelmed. Um, excited, but overwhelmed. Um, and Jessica and I were talking just, just the other day. Uh, our, our sense of being overwhelmed at, at kind of the brokenness right outside our door, it, it actually goes beyond the foster system. I don't know if, if you guys are, you know, keep up with the headlines or not, but when you start to actually look and see what's, what's happening outside our doors, whether it's right in our own backyard here in the city or it's beyond uh, internationally, there, there's, there's some broken, dark things happening. I don't know, on Friday, if you're a social media person, you might have seen... Twitter and Facebook was just blowing up with this. Friday was kind of an international shine a light on slavery day. Okay? Um, there, you know, there's lots of legislation happening about it right on Friday, and so that's why it was, um, they were talking about it that day. But basically, internationally, all over the world, um, uh, people were, were, were talking about the reality that's, that slavery is alive and well today. You know, we think Wilberforce took care of it, Lincoln took care of it, you know, we outlawed it 150 years ago. But the reality is, there are estimated 30 million human slaves today. 30 million. We might have outlawed it 150 years ago, but the reality is, is that there are more slaves today than there have ever been before in the history of the world. It's incredible. And you, you scroll down and then you see you know, what's happening in the Middle East. Just last week, how many Christians were beheaded? 21? 21 Christians systematically executed. And then this last week, hundreds more were captured. Hundreds more. I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to, to, to think about the world. It's overwhelming to consider, consider what a dark and a broken world that we live in. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it, the, the, the temptation is to be like, well, that's, that's over there. And you kind of feel bad for a minute and then you kind of move on, right? It, it's, it's so far removed. That's just that's ink on a page, right? Or words on a screen. Um, you know, it doesn't really affect my life that much. Well, first off, it should. Um, but secondly... Um, the reality is, for, for some of us, this, this overwhelming sense of the, the brokenness and darkness of the world, it, it's a little bit closer to home. Joe and Roxy had their car stolen this week, you know? And, and then a couple days after that, they, they find themselves in the hospital getting meds for their kids who just won't stop throwing up, you know? And so Joe, Joe was telling me on Friday, by the way, I asked him if I could say this, but Joe was telling me on Friday, he's like, yeah, I found myself last night as we were in the hospital. I had to leave for a moment and just go out into the hospital parking lot and basically say, God, why? Just hit after hit after hit. Why do these things keep happening? Basically, you know, throwing his hands up to God and saying, God, I'm exhausted already. What's going on? You know, how, how, do, you, how do we approach stuff, you know, the foster system? How do we approach these, these massive ills in the world um, that we see? How do we approach stuff like that when your car gets stolen and your kids are in the hospital? How do, you, how do you go through days like that with any sense of hope or any sense of peace or any sense of joy? This last Friday morning after our community group um, at Starbucks, um, the guys went off to work and I was getting my refill and I was about to, uh, about to head into the office and I started chatting with a guy um, that I've been getting to know there for the last couple of years. And for, we sat at the, the half and half station for about 20 minutes. And there's people all around us. Um, but we just got in, engrossed in this conversation. For some reason, this guy broke, uh, broke into this. He said, Philip, you know, I've been developing this, this formula for success. He said, I've been developing this formula for health, happiness, and wholeness, for the in, for not just for the individual, but also for society as a whole. And he said, you want to hear it? I said, sure. Great. What, you know, what is it? And so he broke into this uh, long explanation 
told me the formula it had to do with dreams and, and desires and energy and expectation and uh, um, efficiency and, and focus. And there was, use all of these different. Basically, he said, if there are these six or seven things that if everybody could perfect, if everyone could just perfect these things, everybody's life would be whole and happy and, and, and so on. He said, and, and he said, and 70% of the world's ills will be gone like that. I'm not sure how we got that, that exact percentage, but that's what he said. 70% of the world's would be, ills would be gone like that. And he, and he said, Philip, what do you think? I said, well, I said, I, I see where you're going. You know, I, I see where you're going with that. I said, There's, there is kind of one, one issue there. I said that kind of um, goes against the grain of something, you know, deeply held belief that I have. And I said, that is that we live in a broken world with a lot of broken people. I said, we fail. I said, if, if my health and happiness and wholeness is dependent upon whether or not I can perfect these seven things, if it's dependent upon what I can muster up, I said, man, I'm in for a lot of trouble. And I said, and if our world, if our society is, is dependent for, for health and happiness and wholeness based upon whether or not we can achieve these certain things, man, we're in for a lot of trouble. I said, I said you know, you look at world history, you look at, you know, the headlines, you even look at personal experience, if you're honest, and we're in for a lot of trouble. I asked him, I said, how does your formula account for the fact that we fail and that we sin against ourselves every day? We sin against others every day. We sin against our creator every day. How does your formula account for that? So we talked for a little bit about it, and, um, and then I, he gave me the opportunity to tell him. I, you know, I, I said, you know, I love that you've wrestled through these questions. I've wrestled through some of these same questions as well, and I think I, too, have an answer for the health and the happiness and wholeness of the individual and for society, but it's not a formula. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. Amen? He is our hope. He, he is the hope that we have in, in, in the face of, you know, in, in, in a world of uh, slavery and oppression and violence like we're seeing over in the Middle East and we're seeing right here in the United States. He is the hope that we have for restoration and for healing and for wholeness for the kids coming into the foster system. He, it's his steady hand that you can hold when your car gets stolen and your kids are in the hospital. He, he is the one. And by the way, you don't see that anywhere else in the Bible better than you do in, in John 18. And you're wondering if you're ever going to get there. And here we are. John 18. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that better illustrated. And, 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 and by the way, you, you know what? Um, as, as Joe was out there praying in the, in the hospital parking lot, you know what he told me? On, on Friday morning he was talking about this. And he said, you know what I, I realized as I was out there praying? Um, he basically, as he was saying, God, I'm exhausted. God, what's going on? All these things, hit after hit after hit. He basically had to remind himself this truth. God, you're still in charge, and you're still good. Okay, he is sovereign, and he is good. God, you're in charge, and God, you are good. And like I said, no other place in, than uh, in John 18 is this better uh, illustrated. And so let's go there together. John 18, we're going to start in verse 1. My hope is that... Um, Whatever you have come in here with, I don't know what you've come in here with. Maybe you're just as weighed down as I am when, I, when you read the headlines, right? Maybe you've got your own personal trials like Joe and Roxy have been going through lately. But my hope is that when all is said and done today, that you will remember this one single truth. God is in charge and God is good. I'm going to say it about 50 times today. In, in light of, you know, whatever dark situation you might be going through, you will go through tomorrow or the next week or the next week. Remember this one single truth. God is in charge and God is good. Can we say that together? God is in charge and God is good. Say it one more time. God is in charge and God is good. All right, let's look at John 18 and we will, we will read this uh, together and we'll see how this comes out here. John 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden 
which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus is in charge. Jesus is good. Do you see it? Jesus is in charge and Jesus is good. Look again with me at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Knowing all that would happen to him, John says. John keeps pointing the same truth out over and over and over in this gospel. Jesus knows where he is headed, right? Jesus is no victim, Right? Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord is what he says. He knows where he's going. He's in charge of this situation. Judas, the Pharisees, uh, even Satan himself believe at this point that they are finally gaining the upper hand. Right? They're finally, uh, you know, this is their moment of victory. This is their hour. But the reality is from what the scriptures tell us, God has been orchestrating all of this, all of history up until this very moment. God has been orchestrating history to lead up to this moment all the way since the very first garden, since the, the Garden of Eden. Remember, you know, God tells, tells the woman, he says, um, from your womb will come one who will crush the head of Satan, crush the head of the serpent. He said he will, you know, Satan will strike the heel of the promised one, but in, do, you know, in so doing, the, the promised one will crush the head of the serpent. It's an incredible image that God gives us. All of history has been winding its way to this moment. Satan, in this dark hour, is about to slip his fangs into the heel of Jesus. But as he does, Jesus is going to crush his head once and for all. For thousands of years, God has been leading us up to this moment, giving us this promise, pointing to this moment. And John gives us some of these pictures right here in the story. For example... John decides to slip in the detail that they crossed the brook Kidron. Okay? If we've learned anything from our study through the Gospel of John together over the last year, it's that John doesn't typically put in a lot of meaningless detail. He's very, he's very uh, specific about what he includes. So, so John decides to slip in the detail about Jesus and his followers crossing the brook Kidron. So why is that important? What would that have meant to the first century readers of John's Gospel? Well, there was another famous figure in the history of Israel that crossed the brook Kidron with his followers, with his servants. And his name is David. King David in, in 1 Samuel 15, is, is, he was sitting on the throne, but then one of his own betrayed him. One of his own rejected him and betrayed him. And so David, with his followers, went weeping, crossing over the brook, brook Kidron. You read that in 1 Samuel 15. Okay? What happens to Absalom? And you remember the story. What happens to Absalom? Uh, eventually. What happens to him in the end? Anybody remember? Katie remembers it. He was hung. Hung in battle. By his hair? He, was, he, was, he got caught, right? Got caught in a branch or something. Um, now, 
Uh, centuries later, the greater David, we're told, the greater David comes and he too with his followers is crossing over the brook Kidron. The one who betrays Jesus, Judas, what happens to him in the end? In shame, he hangs himself. Okay, all of this foreshadowing. All, all throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see this foreshadowing pointing to what's going to happen in Jesus. But the brook Kidron is, is, is more important than that even. Uh, it, while all of this is going down, it's Passover time. And most of you are familiar with Passover. Passover is a festival that the Israelites celebrated, uh, celebrating that God's deliverance for them from Egypt. Right? God was going to pour out his wrath on Egypt for their stubbornness and their hard-heartedness and their rebellion against him. And so uh, God tells his people, he said, um, you know, when I pour out my wrath, he said, you know, you first slaughter a lamb and you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on your doorpost. And if you take shelter under the blood of the lamb, my wrath, my justice will, pour, will, will pass over you. Hence, Passover, right? And so um, we know ultimately that, uh, you know, that this, this, you know, all in the Old Testament, all of these sacrifices, it really wasn't about the lambs. The, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that God's not all that interested in lambs or, you know, bulls or goats or pigeons or the rest of it. All of this is a foreshadowing to Jesus, the true lamb of God, right? And when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming out to the Jordan, he, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? But, the, but the Jews, in this moment, they are celebrating Passover. So when Jesus and his followers are crossing over the brook Kidron there, it's Passover time. And, and during Passover time, during that festival, literally hundreds of thousands of animals are slaughtered each year right? during Passover. Uh, just 30 years after Jesus' time, Josephus recorded a census um, detailing how many, how many animals were slaughtered. 256,000 animals were slaughtered in the temple that year. Okay? That's, a, that's a lot of animals. That's a lot of blood. Okay? So when, when you slaughter an animal, you actually drain out the blood and you throw it on the altar and so on. That's a lot of blood in that temple. Well, here's the deal. They've got a channel that goes from the temple courtyard where the, the altar is down out of the temple. And guess where it runs into? The Brook Kidron. So during Passover time, literally the Brook Kidron runs red with blood. This is where Jesus chooses to take his disciples. Right? And basically, they wade through a, 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 a stream that is red with the blood of the lamb. Okay? It, it's, it's almost as if Jesus is reinforcing, is reminding his disciples and you and me, yet again, this is no coincidence. Jesus is no victim. Th- this has been uh, uh, foreshadowed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. When Jesus was arrested and the disciples had fled, Imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment what they must have been feeling. Imagine what they must have been thinking. They've, they've run, they've probably uh, run off. They probably don't get all the imagery yet. We know they don't yet, but they don't get all the imagery yet. So they're running, they're hiding, and they're alone, and they're confused and probably furious with God and they're saying, God, what is happening? God, where are you? God, why are you let, letting this happen? You know, throwing up their arms like Joe was on, on, on Thursday night. Everything is falling apart. What's happening? But what seemed to be defeat what seemed to be defeat was God's greatest victory. The disciples weren't able to see yet how, how God is grading, working his greatest good in what seems to be the greatest defeat. But as Steve read out of, early, you know, out of Romans earlier, that God works all things together for the good of those who love and for those who are called according to it, its purpose. Now bring that reality into your life and to my life. When everything around us comes crashing down, and there seems to be no light, no hope, no way out. Could it be that God is going to use this, you know, some tragedy or this trial or this situation for your good and for his glory? Uh, the first time I was in India, the first time I traveled to India, 
um, I went with a team of Americans, and we were there for a couple of weeks, and we were doing ministry, uh, and we spent a lot of time in the northeastern part of India. And so we went, we traveled up there, and then we, we traveled over to some of the rural parts of uh, India, to some of the villages, and we were, um, you know, sharing the gospel, we were preaching, and we were doing some humanitarian work. And at the end of the couple of weeks, we were heading back into the city where we were going to fly from there to Bangalore and then back onto the States. Right? And so it was kind of a long, I came in a four or five hour long bus ride back into the city. And in that city, they had a pizza hut. Right? And we'd been in India for like two weeks. And so we were really excited about some pizza, right? some American food. And so as we were, uh, as we were driving, um, it, we ended up having to make like six different stops right, on the way. And I was the one leading that trip. And so I, I was the timekeeper. Where I had the schedule. I really wanted to make sure we were there on time. Plus, I wanted some pizza. Right? So I was getting really frustrated. We had people that had to, um, you know, I think two bathroom stops. We had to stop and get gas. We, we, uh, our, we had engine problems three different times on the drive, the, that, that short drive. I was getting incredibly frustrated, incredibly frustrated. So we're driving into the city. When we, we finally make it in, and we were just a couple miles from our destination. As, as we're kind of looking outside and you know, seeing the sights, we, we started noticing a, a change in the people around us. All of a sudden, you know, there's people everywhere. Po- population is so huge in India. There's people everywhere. But a couple miles from, from Pizza Hut, we notice just kind of the dynamic of the people are changing. Everybody's kind of rushing away, walking very, very quickly away from the very place we were driving to. Um, and so we thought, oh, this is weird, and we're kind of, you know, noticing it. Together. And then, then we saw uh, just up ahead some billowing smoke. And just before we get to our destination, um, the bus driver gets a phone call, and a friend of his says, uh, just minutes ago, there, a bomb went off in Pizza Hut. If one of those six stops did not happen, one of the six, we would have been in the Pizza Hut when, it, when, it, when, uh, when the bomb went off. Okay. I was incredibly frustrated. I, I, was, I, I could not, I could not you know, believe it was taking us so long uh, to, to get there, to, 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 to make it back to our destination. But I, I truly believe that God orchestrated the events, that God allowed every single one of those things to happen, not, because, not to make me frustrated, not because he's got some sick sense of humor, okay? But because he knew what he was doing. He knew what was best for us. Who, who is in charge? God, God is in charge, and God is good. God is in charge, and God is good. John makes this clear in another detail. Read, read verse 4 again. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. This is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible. Isn't this amazing? Um, think about this, this uh, for a moment. First off, John tells us that, that the soldiers come out with torches and lanterns uh, and weapons, right? So, a bunch of the commentaries that I read all said the same thing. They said that Passover uh, was full moon. So why would they have come out with torches and lanterns? It would have been almost as bright as day. Why would they have come out with torches and lanterns? Well, the, the, comment, uh, the commentaries speculate, well, perhaps it's because they think Jesus is going to be in hiding. Jesus knows that his betrayer has gone out, right? That it's coming. And so they think, well, it's like Saddam Hussein, right? We're going to find him in a hole somewhere. He's going to be hiding in a thicket of trees. He's going to be hiding in a cave somewhere, right? But, but, what, but what does John tell us? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He came forward. He marched out towards them. 
What a contrast this is to the first garden when Adam, you know, the first Adam, he ran and hid. Our second Adam comes marching out to the battle line. Why? Because Jesus isn't a victim. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control of this situation. He will not be hiding. He'll be marching out to the battle. So he goes out and he meets them and he steps out and he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says, I am. And now look, our English translators, they add the word he. So in some of your Bibles, it might, you know, the, the he might be italicized. When, that's, when, you, when you have that, that's, that's the English translators adding that word in to help it make sense to us in our English language. Okay? They're trying to make it grammatically correct. But Jesus was less concerned about making a grammatically correct, correct statement. And, and he's more concerned about making a theologically correct statement. Jesus says, I am. Two words. I am. What's he saying there? Well, Jesus is taking the divine name of God upon himself. In Exodus chapter 3, we're, we're told that um, you know, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and God tells Moses, you know, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then, Pharaoh, and then Moses says, well, what if Pharaoh asks me who sent me? What, what, I, what I tell him your name is? And then, and, and then God says, tell him, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. I am. What does he mean by that? What, what does he mean, uh, you know, I am well, when you and I say I am, we always follow it up with I am this or I am that or I am because, but not God. He just simply says, I am. In other words, he's saying I, I, there is no beginning to me. There's no end to me. There's no because to me. I, I don't depend on anyone or anything. In fact, all things, all persons everywhere depend upon me entirely every single second. I am and so Jesus, this man in the flesh, standing before Judas and these, and these Roman soldiers and these, these temple officers, Jesus, this man in the flesh, takes that name upon himself. That's an incredible statement. And what happens when he does this? What happens when he says, I am? Well, the soldiers' knees buckle and they fall back. And we, we have to, you know, get that, get that scene in our mind. Um, John tells us that a band of soldiers come. That, that makes it kind of sound like there's like a dozen guys there or something, maybe. Ten, ten or twelve guys there. But actually, the word, that the Greek word that's used is spira, S-P-E-I-R-A. And that can be translated one of three different ways. Okay? It can mean a detachment of soldiers. And a detachment of, of soldiers was 200 well-trained imperial soldiers, Roman troops. Okay, that's one way it can be translated. It could be translated uh, two other ways with two different types of uh, what's called a cohort. And that, that could have either meant 600 soldiers or 1,000 soldiers, including cavalry. So, so even if we're, we're considering on the most conservative side of things, there's at least 200, you know, war, uh, 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 battle-trained, you know, war, what, what's the word I'm thinking of? War ready, whatever. They're, these, guys, these guys are tough guys. I don't, no matter which way you look at it, these are trained, experienced Roman soldiers, right? This literally, they send out an army to arrest Jesus and his followers. And they come out, and then Jesus comes out marching towards them, this meek, mild-mannered carpenter, right? This, this man whom, you know, children love to come and sit on his lap and play with them. This meek, mild-mannered carpenter comes out, and with the word of his mouth, flattens these soldiers. That, that's the scene that we get. That's the scene that John gives us. Who's in charge this moment? In the darkest of nights, who's in charge at this moment? Jesus is in charge. It's almost like he just quickly just 
lets his glory shine just for a moment, just kind of flexes his muscles, flattens everybody, as if to make sure that everybody understands, I'm in charge right now. I'm calling the shots right now. And not only is he in charge, but he is good. After he flattens the soldiers, he says, basically, he says, get up. He says, get, whom, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? I already asked you this. Whom do you seek? And as they get up, they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I already told you, that's me. Now let these men go. And on Friday, as I was studying this, this passage again, it, it brought me right back to Exodus again. Because Jesus says, I, I told you, I am. Now let these, let these men go. What does is, what is God say in Exodus chapter 3? Tell them I am sent you to let my people go. Jesus now says, I am, let my people go. And what's amazing is that the Roman soldiers obey. Jesus is facing down a literal army, and, and he's the one calling the shots. And by the, the reason why, by the way, they, they sent out 200 Roman soldiers is not because they think that's going to take that many to overpower Jesus. That's for his followers. That, that's for, you know, what if he's surrounded by an adoring crowd that's going to want to fight back? Well, they need a whole army to make sure that they can capture all of the followers. Um, and in fact, one of the, the followers of Jesus did fight back, didn't he? Rome, uh, Peter took, took the ear off a guy. So the question is, why didn't they arrest the, the other 12? They've got 200 well-trained Roman soldiers and about a dozen fishermen and tax collectors. Why didn't they arrest them? And the, and the, the answer is clear, because Jesus didn't let them. Jesus didn't give them permission to do so. He wouldn't allow it. He says, it's me you want, let them go. And in fact, the phrase that he, he literally uses is this. He says, forgive them, take me instead. That's what the phrase literally means. Forgive them, take me instead. And that sums up about as clearly as you can be. That sums up Jesus' whole mission. Forgive them, take me instead. You know what that reminded me of? Not Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Harry Potter. We're expanding. <laughs> if you've ever read the first Harry Potter book, you might remember, and if you haven't, you should. Um, it, you might remember uh, that Voldemort, he who must not be named, uh, Voldemort uh, goes to attack Harry Potter when he is just a, a young child. Right? Goes to, goes to kill him. And uh, as he does so, uh, Harry's mom, Lily, stands in the way, and she takes the curse for him. She, she stands there, and she sacrifices her life to save her child. And when she does that, Lily's sacrificial death for Harry basically removes all power from Voldemort, breaks the power of Voldemort. And so years later, when Harry's, you know, at Hogwarts, and, all, and, and Voldemort goes and tries to put his hands and grab a hold of Harry Potter, he can't touch him. Why? Because the, 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 the power of Lily's sacrificial love basically served as a protection over Harry. Voldemort couldn't touch him because of Lily's substitute. And this is exactly the, the picture of John 18 that we get. You've got Jesus standing there, and you've got these 200 Roman soldiers, and Jesus says, me for them, you cannot touch them now. You cannot touch them. And you might be thinking, well, that's great for the 12. That would have been really fun to be in the, in the garden and to see Jesus have my back like that. You know, but, but what about us? It's 2,000 years later. What about me? That's Peter. That's good. He got like a get-out-of-jail-free card. What about me? And that's what verse 11 is all about. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do you know what the cup is? 
all throughout the Old Testament, uh, the, 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 the prophets and the writers refer to this cup, and it's always referring to Judgment Day. The cup, actually, in ancient times, was kind of like the electric chair for us, right? It's referring to a death, but it's not just any death in general. It's a judicial death. It's a death, you know, that's, that's in regard to justice. And so, so God, you know, talks about this cup of wrath that will come. That, in, in Psalms, it says that one day that every, all the wicked and all of the unrighteous will drink the cup of God's wrath until every last drop has been consumed, until the dregs. That's what he says. Here's the tough news. All of us are wicked and unrighteous. Which means all of us are destined to drink this cup of God's wrath. All, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. We're all broken people. We sin against ourselves, one another, and God. We talked about that. And so, so when Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm taking the cup for you. I'm going to drain the cup for you. I'm going to the cross. And on the cross, I'm going to take every ounce, every last drop of God's wrath, every last drop of of the cup of wrath that we poured out on me, I'm taking the curse for you. I'm going to be your substitute. It's not just for the disciples. It's for you and me as well. Hear Jesus when he says, I am, let my people go. Jesus proves here in John 18 that in the darkest of nights, when things seem as bad as they possibly could be, that he is not only in charge of the situation, he's not only in control, but he is committed to working all things together for the good of those who love him. God is in charge and God is good. Amen? God is in charge and God is good. So what does this mean for you and me? If, if, if you're going through that dark night, if you're going through that dark season, that, that troubling time, if you're about to engage in some difficult, seemingly impossible situation, What does this mean for you and me? Well, here's what I'm convinced of. If you and I can see John 18 for what it is, if you and I can see Jesus in the darkest of nights, when when literally an army of Roman soldiers is staring at you, surrounding you, and Judas, who John, when it says in John 13 that that Satan is literally possessing Judas, you've got a Roman army bearing down on you, and Satan himself standing in front of you. If you and I can see Jesus, standing in authority and in power, declaring salvation and deliverance for those who would follow him. If you and I can see that, then I'm convinced that you and I can walk through anything with faith, hope, and peace. Do you believe that? God is in charge, and God is good. Say, let's say that together one more time. God is in charge, and God is good. Let's pray.